It's been an interesting time recently because what triggered it was the antitrust division lost two cases uh, in a row in the first two trials that they brought for bringing cartel-like wage-fixing and no-poaching agreements, um, and they lost both the cases. And then I was also concerned about the Mark Fortner case uh, in the Boeing investigation. That was Mike Volkoff. This week, I have an extended conversation with Mike about a three-part blog post series he recently posted on the Department of Justice's trial record in FCPA trials, other white-collar trials, and antitrust trials. It's a really deep dive into trial strategy, the trial results, and what lessons learned were from each one of those cases. This podcast is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back with my good friend, Mike Volkoff. Mike, first of all, welcome. Hey, Tom. Always good to spend time with you. Takes takes me back to the first time I met you, which was, oh my gosh, 2008, I believe, uh, when you were live tweeting from a uh, from an event. And uh, I met you then, Tom. And you know what that, uh, who would have known that now you'd be on Elon Musk's, uh, you know, favorite communications technique or social <laughs> media technique. Look, look how the world has changed. That's right. So, Mike, you wrote a blog post series about uh, the Department of Justice's mixed bag on criminal trials recently, a three-part series. I thought it was great. I thought it was somewhat provocative, and uh, you made raise some interesting questions and some important points. So I wanted to see if maybe we could visit around uh, that and where you might see a DOJ trial going forward, not only in the FCPA space, but in the antitrust space as well. It's been an interesting time recently because what triggered it was the antitrust division lost two cases uh, in a row in the first two trials that they brought for bringing cartel-like wage-fixing and no-poaching agreements, um, and they lost both the cases. And then I was also concerned about the Mark Fortner case uh, in the Boeing investigation, and you and I have done a lot of work on the Boeing case uh, in digging into that. And then on the positive side, I was really uh, I was really struck by the government's victory in the Roger Ung case, you know, with the one MDB Malaysia uh, sovereign wealth fund. So I was really uh, it was kind of an uneven result, and I know DOJ goes through times like that, and I just felt like there were enough trials out there to talk about what kind of pattern or what kind of effort we're seeing, sort of the positive and the, the negative uh, messages. Um, Mike, so, could, uh, could yeah. we start with uh, what seems to be uh, kind of a deep point of demarcation for uh, DOJ and actually bringing cases or going to trial, which is the 2008 financial crisis? And why was that, why is that still so significant to the DOJ psyche today? Well, I think it. Uh, I think the, the department has never recovered from it. To be honest, you know, when we look back on the early two thousands, and remember, we had the WorldCom, Adelphia, we had all these uh, scandals, 
and DOJ stepped up and prosecuted Bernie Ebers, prosecuted Enron, and uh, you know, uh, in Houston, and won those cases. And frankly, the Enron task force was perhaps one of the best models for taking white collar crime, major major cases, and doing a, a thorough investigation. Now, ultimately, they got reversed on the Arthur Anderson case, but along the way, they did win the case against Ken Lay. They did win the case, uh, and obviously, he, he passed away uh, before getting sentenced in that case. But nonetheless, that was a high watermark, I thought, uh, for the department. And what happened in 2008 to 2009, and I, uh, I get to use this word because it's a book, was uh, the department became the chicken shit club in the sense that they wouldn't bring the cases that needed to be brought against the higher ups uh, in that responsible for the financial crisis. And I think it I don't know that it was a conscious decision to do that, but they made no effort to organize like a task force, nothing. And there to this day, there are people who are upset that people, the, the, the uh, high rollers there who did the mortgage, engaged in mortgage-backed securities, got away scot-free. And what happened when you look back on it, and I was very intrigued by it, is they had a trial against two Bear Stearns traders who were pushing uh, what they knew to be fraudulent or about to fall apart or falling apart mortgage-backed securities. And uh, the department messed up. It was in the Eastern District of New York. And uh, they had some discovery losses and things like that. And they lost the trial. And the two were acquitted. And then from that point on, the department just vanished. And so I think the department has been taking it on the chin. Because how many times, I mean, we still hear about it in, uh, you know, in the last political campaign or, you know, going back to 2016, whatever, we've, we've heard criticism of the Department of Justice for failure to bring the cases that needed to be brought. So that's my starting point here. And I don't want to ever see the department get into that type of mode again. And I don't think they're in that mode now, and I'm not suggesting that. They, they won, for example, uh, the Katie Holmes case was a big case for them to win. I mean, they took her on. When you read the newspaper reports, you really don't know how the trial's going. But uh, they won that case, in my view. So four, you mean Elizabeth Holmes? Of, yeah, Elizabeth Holmes, not Katie Holmes. Uh, I, there's my uh, defamation case. I just made it. So, uh, no, but I thought Elizabeth Holmes got, you know, prosecuted, and it was a tough trial, and they won it. And they went after a CEO and a fraudulent scheme. And I thought that was, uh, you know, a great victory. They did a lot of hard work in that case. And so on the other hand, you know, they, and they won the Roger Ong case. And I know you've been writing a lot about that. And that was a, sounded like a really tough case because you had Tim Leisner as your cooperating witness. And, uh, so I just don't want to see the department going back to where it was back in 2008, 2009. And I don't think, and I don't get the sense that they are, but they've had some, you know, tough losses lately. I mean, in the Mark Forkner case, the Boeing one, which we can talk about a little bit, they, I mean, the jury was out 90 minutes and the jury came back and jurors came back and, and apologized to him in the hallway. 
Okay, they said they were sorry that he was prosecuted. I mean, that's that's something's wrong, Tom. When you bring a criminal case and the jury comes out and apologizes to the defendant, do you know what I mean? Something is missing in that story that they told. Look, there, you know, these are high stakes trials. I get it, but to me, you know, you always say, and I think you, you've said this too, that you, you win your case at the investigation level, at the grand jury level. Who are your witnesses? How are you collecting the evidence? How are you building your case? And uh, I think there's another issue which we should probably discuss a little bit is when you outsource these investigations to the big firms, and Boeing was outsourced to several a massive investigation, they don't have the same incentives that, uh, that line prosecutors do. Line prosecutors want to build a case and flip people and make it into a bigger case and go as high into the organization as they can. That's I don't believe that that I don't believe that outsourced investigations have the same sort of drive to do that. So you know it's a, it's a it's it's an interesting point. Um, when then just one last comment on the antitrust division. Look, the antitrust division won a big case against the CEO of Bumblebee, who uh, they prosecuted him for price fixing in the tuna fish market. And they won. And they, the jury was not out that long at all in that case. And it was, it was a hard-fought case. Uh, and uh, so the department in the antitrust division, they've had some, you know, they're pretty aggressive and they've had some good luck. Recently, they've taken it on the chin. They've had two mistrials of the chicken producers cartel in Denver. And uh, I've never seen this. A federal judge dragged out the assistant attorney general, the head of the antitrust division, and said, are you sure you want to do a third one? And uh, the assistant attorney general said, I'll, I'll think about it. Thank you very much, Your Honor. But then turned around and said, we're going forward. So, Mike, in the uh, FCP FCPA world, obviously, we don't have very many cases going to trial. Right. And from my perspective, the maybe the bellwetter or the... The watershed was the Gunsting cases. Right. From the Gunsting cases forward, we had really just a complete paucity of cases until the Hoskins case, and now we have the Ung case. But um, if we kind of take the FCPA cases and the antitrust cases that uh, you wrote about in your blog post series, which we'll link to in the show notes, uh, it seemed to me that you had a couple of different criticisms. In the Gunsting Sting case, I think you uh, uh, were critical of uh, the way the cases were uh, prosecuted at trial. Right. In the um, uh, cartel around price or, or wage fixing and wage setting cases, you had a different criticism, which was around, I think, the way the evidence was presented. And then in the Fortner case, the Boeing case, the criticism was not so much the presentation of the trial strategy or rather the, the presentation or the theory. It was the underlying facts which pointed to systematic failure um, around safety uh, up and down the organization and the inability from the original internal investigation to point to one person. 
and right. that only one person was prosecuted. So I was wondering if you could tell us uh, what you saw uh, was the, the fault in the theories and if you uh, or their presentations at trial. And how does one as a prosecutor think through either the theory, legal theory you're going to use or how are you going to present it? And if you can't come up with adequate solutions, does that mean the case shouldn't be brought? Well, there. I mean, look, there's a real, uh, you know, as a there's a real art or a real sense of charging a case and structuring it in a way that you know you can present it, and that it's going to be compelling and to the jury. And um, I have a couple thoughts on that with regard to. First off, the, you know, the, the, uh, the gun sting case, you know, what was that? The shot show sting case. That was a really tough case because you, the, the, and it was subject to entrapment defenses. And you had a cooperating witness in that case who was really difficult to sell to the jury that he was, you know, he was actually presented as sort of worse than some of the defendants. And you set yourself up when the government uses an undercover with money to an entrapment defense so that you better have a lot of evidence that the defendants uh, who get ensnared in this uh, were predisposed or had committed crimes on other occasions. And I think there were a lot of defendants there that they didn't, they didn't have that kind of evidence. It was, it was too broad of a case. And that case... You're right. It stung so badly that I think it held back the FCPA prosecutors for years in bringing individual cases. But now the antitrust division cases, first off with the chicken cases, what I didn't understand about the way they were indicted was you had 10 individuals from separate companies put in one trial. And I know from doing multi-defendant cases, it's hard enough for a jury to stick with five or six defendants, but to put 10 and put on some evidence that goes against one versus the other, it's really difficult for the jury to keep track of everything. What I didn't understand is they had some companies that they could have indicted with some of the individuals. You always have to think about, you know, where is the jury going to compromise where, how strong is your evidence? What is the bulk of your evidence? And so the chicken cases, they've had two cooperating witnesses testify who say, yeah, we were part of the conspiracy. We agreed on bidding and all that. The wage fixing case, the, the two acquittals, one of them occurred involving in Dallas, a very narrow case, Dallas physical therapists who were the outsourcing rate rates and the, how much they're paid. I have a feeling that, uh, there, first off, there was a really debated jury instruction that was given in that case, which said that they had to prove that there was substantial impact on the, the, the market from the agreement. And I think that was a bad instruction. They should have litigated that more. But number two, I don't think, you know, when you look at the case, I mean, you know Dallas better than I do, Tom, but, you know, the physical, two physical therapy outsource providers, I don't know how much of a I'm not saying that what they did was right. I'm just saying in terms of, you know, having a compelling case, it seems a bit, a little bit questionable. The other case, though, the other one that they lost, the wage-fixing case, it was really interesting, and not many people have written about it. 
DaVita, the company, went to trial and was acquitted. This was one of the rare cases where the uh, defense, and by the way, they had a lot to lose. If they lost that case, they might have been excluded from certain healthcare programs. But DaVita rolled the dice along with the former CEO uh, of DaVita in, this was in, uh, I think it was Texas again, or I may be wrong in terms of where, where the market was, where there were agreements in terms of getting professionals, higher-ups in the dialysis business. And to me, the company said, we're going to trial. Now, that's a, we don't see that, and I think the last time we saw that in the FCPA arena was, was that California company years and years ago, uh, which was convicted, as, and it was privately owned. Now, the Forkner case is more compelling because the jury saw through the weakness of the case. And the jury, the defense was smart. They said, look, the re my guy is here. He's a, you know, early 40-year-old family guy who's being blamed for the 737 MAX uh, safety scandal. Now, I mean, I'm not saying he was an angel in this, but when you read the Delaware Chancery Court's decision outlining the culture and all the problems at Boeing, you walk away saying somebody knew up higher up than him. And the jury acquitted him in 90 minutes because they believed it. They think he was being a scapegoat. He was being the scapegoat. And I mean, you know, I don't, the Justice Department bringing that case was really, really um, challenging. Um, and you know what? It also looks like you know when the BP uh, oil rig blew up, Deepwater Horizon. Those cases they had against some of the engineers, those melted away too. And uh, so it's really hard when you have an organizational failure. But I do believe if you had real prosecutors who were committed to digging out the evidence and. What did people know and what did they say about the safety issues? I bet you you would have found people higher up who were responsible. I, I just do. And I think the jury saw that. So they had a sense of fairness. <laughs> we're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more from Mike Volkoff. So, Mike, uh, one of your other uh, interesting points around the uh, Gunsting cases, I thought, was that um, I don't want to say it was wrongly charged, but you pointed out that they were charged with uh, multiple defendants were charged with a conspiracy, yet there was really no evidence of any overarching conspiracy. Perhaps there would, uh, if there was conduct, it wasn't conduct conspired together. And if it was conspired, it was because of the entrapment or opportunity that the department itself created. Uh, it, it was that, did I read that right as well? Yeah, no, I think you're right. What You can't conspire with a government informant. I mean, you can't have a conspiracy with the government informant. It just, you know, you can't, uh, they're not, they don't count because they're the government actor. Uh, and um, you're right that there were some several broad conspiracies that were brought but the and charged. But if you remember some of the facts going back, first off, you had a you had a difficult 
presentation that was of the uh, cooperating witness in the case, the person who himself had problems in the industry uh, and ultimately, I believe, went to jail for five years, if I'm not correct, uh, not wrong, um, or several years, I can't remember. But he cooperated, but he was, he was tied up with FCPA issues, uh, and uh, he ultimately, you know, tried to, to uh, you know, flip and make these cases for the government. They were, the government also had a lot of sort of weaknesses in the case where they had unrecorded com- contacts, uh, they also had instances where the defendants were asking the cooperator, is this legal for us to do this on tape? And uh, uh, one of my clients was, uh, was one of those who said, Can I, are, are you sure this is okay? Is this legal? And he, you know, the cooperator just hemmed and hawed. Well, that's not like, you know, really strong evidence that this guy was acting with criminal intent. He's trying to find out. Is, is this right? Now, of course, he didn't go and hire, you know, a big-name lawyer or anything to do that. But uh, so there, you're right. There's charging decisions. There also is, uh, you know, Tom, there are also, I think, times when, you know, people trust the government and people don't trust the government. And when you run a defense of a, like, the, 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 the government bungled this, I think juries are more willing to listen sometimes, depending upon how they feel about the government, uh, to those kinds of things. On the other hand, you know, I've seen some other trials, you know, involving clients and you know, re- you know, people that I knew, and uh, you know, the, the government's doing pretty well in in some in a lot of white collar cases that are sort of on standard you know, run-of-the-mill type of cases, securities fraud cases. People are upset right now about rich people, and they think that uh, rich people are uh, have an have a unfair break or unfair lead in the economy. So I think they, they end up getting hurt when they go to trial. So, Mike, uh, now I'd like you to, to ask you maybe to speculate down the road, and I would preface it with echoing your comments from the uh, Deputy Attorney General, I believe, or Assistant Attorney General, who had to go to court around the uh, chicken price-fixing cases uh, yeah. and announce, you know, take take a lecturing from the judge uh, who has announced there'll be a third prosecution. Uh, just yesterday or over the weekend, uh, Lena Khan, the head of the FTC, uh, said that they would continue to be aggressive. I recognize the FTC generally brings civil actions. Nevertheless, uh, active now in the antitrust sphere. Um, but um, uh, where do you see uh, the department moving forward uh, in light of the the uh, failures at trial, but also with the successes that you've talked about, the Roger Ung trial, the Elizabeth Holmes trial, uh, both are big uh, ones, yeah. major successes. Do you, you, would you see a renewed vigor around prosecution from this administration? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I, let's start first with the antitrust division. First off, you have uh, the AAG, Assistant Attorney General's Jonathan Cantor, and right now he has bipartisan support to be aggressive, not only in the criminal area, but in the civil area. And I was surprised, you know, he showed up, the judge, you know, sort of lectured him and said, please take, you know, look at the U.S. Attorney, or the uh, federal prosecution's manual 
and, you know, look at the factors, weigh them carefully. And then he gave a speech three or four days later and said, you know, we're not going to become the chicken shit club, meaning we're not going to run away from this and we're going to do this. And um, they restructured the case. The case was against 10 defendants. They dismissed against five with prejudice. And um, and they assigned some additional attorneys or different attorneys to try the case. He said, look, we're not going to run away. And I think, uh, and you know, run away is one of my favorites from, uh, you know, from Monty Python and the Holy Grail, because the department in 2008, 2009, when they saw that rabbit of fraud, they ran away. Now, uh, I admire uh, Jonathan Kanner for saying we're going to go forward with it and we'll see what happens. Um, but he also is doing the same in the civil context. They brought more merger cases. They have the Google case. FTC has the Facebook case. That's going on now. I think that the I think the one to watch now are FCPA cases, because that Roger Ong case that was a big win, Tom. Because that's to me that was the biggest trial they've had. You know, I mean. Since when? The SHOT Show Sting cases? I mean, that case, they were really challenged. And it, to me, it's as I've told you before, the Goldman Sachs case was the most important case I think ever brought because it was right in the core area of what the FCPA is trying to prevent, which is sovereign wealth, money that's being stolen from the development of an economy to benefit uh, the lower the lower economic classes in Malaysia was stolen by Goldman Sachs. It's outrageous. And Roger Ong, it's an interesting. I mean, I'd actually like to read the trial transcripts just for to read and just to follow it. But you know, he had to explain, in a sense, uh, and you and I talked about this before. He had thirty six million sitting in his bank accounts. And that was alleged to be proceeds from, uh, at least part of it, proceeds from the bribery scheme. And, you know, they put on Tim Leisner, the government put on Tim Leisner as the major cooperating witness who apparently uh, was married more than once, you know, to two women at the same time, lied about a divorce, lied, whatever. He, he had so many lies, he couldn't keep it all straight. But... What was interesting was that they Roger Ong put on a defense and he had his wife get up and testify with no documentation and say, basically, the $36 million came from a, an investment we made years ago, or she made, I think, years ago at 6 or $7 million and turned into 36 And I think the jury knew that that was incredible. And I think they lost points that way. Instead of keeping the focus on Leisner, they put on a defense like that. Now, but I do think that's a, it was a big win. That was a, I mean, it must have been, what, four to six-week trial, I believe, Tom. Six weeks. Six weeks, yeah. And the jury was out for 50 hours, is what I recall. And that's a long time. You know, you get nervous when the jury's out there. There's nothing worse when a jury's out. And you're nervous as the prosecutor. But I'll tell you what. And they also had a discovery snafu early on in the case, remember, where they hadn't turned over materials inadvertently, where they had to delay the case for a while. All the defense got to review some of the documents so or the material. So I think we're going to see a more aggressive uh, FCPA because 
prosecutions because in general, uh, this administration has promised it. And uh, I think they're going to eventually come through. I mean, look, we saw the first uh, corporate settlement come out, but and of course it includes an independent compliance monitor. It also includes consideration of, you know, the companies, all their bad acts, you know, in the past. Uh, you know, seeing something different, that they didn't have a criminal history, but they referenced that they had some regulatory violations in the past. Um, the remediation wasn't sufficient, even though they had had an enhanced compliance program, they hadn't completed the remediation or tested it. I think the FCPA unit right now in the criminal division are going to hold people to a higher, higher standard than we're used to uh, over the last eight to 10 years. Mike, the next uh, potential big FCPA case, certainly that I'm watching, is the Cognizant Technologies case. And there we yeah. have former C CEO and, and general counsel criminally indicted. Now, they were indicted under prior administration, so it's really nothing to do with this administration, at least bringing the charges. And it looks like one of the key defenses is, is going to be the underlying investigation, uh, internal investigation turned over to the government, which led to the basis or formed the basis of the criminal charges against the two individuals. Um, if that those suppositions are correct, do you see that this case will put directly in focus internal investigations uh, and and really challenge those in a way that they haven't been challenged in open court as yet? Yeah, I've been waiting for this day and predicting it'll come at some point because when you have internal, you have to be careful when an internal investigation is conducted that you are not perceived to be acting as an arm of the government. And, uh, you know, there have been some judges, there was, uh, I think it was Chief Judge McMahon from New York who wrote about this. She was concerned about it. And she sort of just went off on this issue. And that is that eventually, are we going to get to the point where the internal investigation actors are going to be held accountable as prosecutors would be? So, for example, your ability to take a statement from somebody and then turn it over to the uh, government for use by the government um, you know, can be challenged as if it was government actors. I don't think that's going to happen in this case, but I don't think they have much else of a defense. Um, you know, it always seemed like a pretty strong case to me because you have, I think, two of the four people in the room are cooperating witnesses when they were, you know, having open discussions about the bribery scheme. But I may be wrong on that. But I think it's going to be a tough case nonetheless because you they're going to put the government on trial and that's about their best defense that they can do. And if the jury thinks it was unfair somehow, then I think it's going to get uh, dicier. But that's a big trial, and I don't know when that's scheduled. Do you know when that's scheduled to go to trial? Is it this year? I believe October 2022. Yeah. Well, that's going to be a bit. That's a, that's definitely going to be a big one. So, but I do think we're going to see more people indicted. Um, you know, they've been indicting the FCPA unit as, uh, you know, working with U.S. attorneys' offices. They've been indicting a lot of people in Texas and Florida um, connected to money laundering, PETAVASA, and Venezuela. Um, 
And uh, I think we're going to see more all around the country uh, growing out of some of these corporate cases. Mike, as always, uh, very informative when I get the chance to uh, sit down and uh, chit-chat with you. Uh, I wanted to thank you again for the three-part series. I thought it was great and a great review of both uh, foliables and wins by the Department of Justice. And hopefully we will uh, have the opportunity to visit uh, on this topic in the future. Absolutely. Really enjoy it, Tom. Always love talking to you. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you enjoyed this podcast with Mike Volkoff as much as I did. It was a ton of fun and I learned a lot. Mike's always a great guest. I hope you will plan to join me at Compliance Week 2022, which will be May 16 to 18 in Washington, D.C. This will be the first full compliance conference since the pandemic began, and I know everyone will be excited to see all of our colleagues live and in person. I hope you'll join me again next week for another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.